Psalm 98 is where we are. If, you, if you're paying attention to um, what Derek read, you may recognize a lot of similar verses to the psalm that I read in Psalm 96 for the call to worship. These are very, very close uh, psalms, have a lot of the same language in them, and they are uh, part of a, a group of psalms right around this, this area here that are all about worshiping God. And this morning... Uh, we're going to look at Psalm 98, not necessarily for the the purpose of learning about worship, although I, I think that we will find these, but we're finishing a three-week uh, three uh, uh, thought on God coming to earth. And if you remember two weeks ago, we looked in Genesis when God first came to earth and in the Garden of Eden, and it was because of sin. It was because of man's uh, disobedience in, uh, to God's laws and God had to come. And then he promised a redeemer. And he promised one would come who would crush the serpent's head, but uh, the serpent would crush his heel. Then last Sunday, of course, we looked at Luke 2, and when God came to earth in the form, uh, in, the, in the babe, in the manger, Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, became a, a man. He became a person and lived among us in a, with a miracle at his Christmas. And in there we find that God fulfills his promise uh, for the Redeemer all the way back in Genesis. And that which they had waited for so long finally has come. This morning we're going to look at the last time that God comes to earth. And we see it uh, foretold in Psalm 93. I'm sorry, Psalm 98. Uh, and so I found this uh, a couple of uh, it was a month or so ago, and and I planned to do this actually on Christmas, on a Christmas Sunday, and then decided to wait one more week. Uh, Isaac Watts. I, mean, I wonder how many of you would recognize that name. He's uh, he's a, a very prolific songwriter. Many years before, we have many of his songs in our hymn book. We sing many of them. When I survey the wondrous cross, possibly his most famous song is "Joy to the World." We sang it last Sunday. Uh, to finish our service. Isaac Watts grew up in the early 1700s, and, and he lived in a time when the only songs that were sung in church were, uh, were portions of Scripture that were set to music. And that's not a bad thing. I, in fact, I really enjoy when we get to sing the Scriptures, but Watts was not uh, satisfied with how church music worship was, was happening in his day. He uh, he looked at the reaction of people that that he would uh, see in in the services and described it as dull indifference. The way that they would sing was whatever. It was just the next thing that we do. It was really not life changing in any way. Uh, he, he he described it as monotonous. He he noticed that there was a lack of joy on the faces of the people that would sing God's word. There was no emotion. He even called it negligent and thoughtless. And so he decided that uh, he wanted to help remedy that problem. And so uh, he was dissatisfied not only with the emotion of the, of the people that were singing the songs, but also uh, he wanted to incorporate New Testament truths into the scriptures that they were singing, more specifically the Psalms. So the, 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 the psalmists are obviously were all uh, the psalms were all written during the Old Testament time. Uh, but Watts wanted to incorporate the New Testament truths into these Old Testament psalms, 
or as he put it, to imitate the language of the New Testament. And so instead of offering straightforward translations of original texts, he would adjust them and adapt them uh, to refer more explicitly to the work of Christ as it had been revealed to us in the New Testament. So when we see Isaac Watts's music, we don't see straightforward renderings of Old Testament scriptures, but we see him taking those truths and it connecting them to truths in the New Testament and then providing us with a song that teaches us uh, from both Testaments. In 1719, he published a hymn book that he called The Psalms of David, imitated in the language of the New Testament and applied to the Christian state in worship. He understood that all of Scripture points to Christ. And when he wrote songs such as Joy to the World, uh, which is his version or his adaptation of Psalm 98, he wanted to, quote, make David sing like a Christian by showing how Christ is the fulfillment of this passage. And so he wrote Psalm 98. Now, what's interesting about Psalm 98, and the reason that I'm, I'm, I'm telling you about this, is because this song got famous accidentally. Isaac Watts did not write joy to the world with Christmas bells ringing in his mind. He wasn't thinking about snow and fruitcake. I'm never thinking about fruitcake. But he wasn't thinking about any of the Christmas thoughts that we have. And yet, if I were to ask you, uh, name a famous Christmas song, it wouldn't take very many choices for you to probably come up with joy to the world. We hear that even in, in secular uh, arenas. We hear the, the song Joy to the World because it's become widely known as a very popular Christmas hymn, but it was never intended as a Christmas song. So I want to this morning consider what Watts was looking at when he came up with the words Joy of Joy to the World and try to see if we can see what he saw. Can we see the truths that Watts saw that caused him to pen these words, joy to the world? Now, you may want to even pull your hymnal out and, and, and read along with some of the, the lyrics and see if you can spot some of them or understand where he was, where he was going with them. But definitely, Psalm 98, I want you, to, I want you to, to, to use your Bible this morning and look through that, and let's consider Psalm 98 together. We have in Psalm 98 a call to worship. And it's a call to worship given to three separate entities. First, we see a call to Israel, the people of God, in verses 1 through 3. Then in verses 4 through 6, we see a call to the nations, to the, to the whole world outside of the people of God. And then we see a call to all of creation, not the people of the world, but the world itself, the rivers and the trees and the rocks and the mountains in verses 7 through 9. The way that it's, it's presented to us in, in the bulletin there in the, in the English Standard Version, uh, you can, it, it very uh, simply or easily uh, makes that distinction. You can see the three stanzas, if you will, these three calls to worship. Now, the main idea of Psalm 98 can be grasped in the very first line. Verse number one, the very first line, O sing to the Lord a new song. And that's what the whole psalm is about. Singing to God a new song. Not just singing any song, but singing a new song. Uh, one writer, uh, uh, well, let me go, um, let me 
show you Psalm 96, since it's only one page. Let's back up to Psalm 96, and we see almost the exact same words uh, of verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord a new song. This idea of a new song first shows up in the Psalms in Psalm 33. And and it's repeated a few times throughout the 150 Psalms, but the first time is given to us in Psalm 33 and verse 3. And it says, sing to him a new song, play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. As As I was doing some research and studying on this, I came across a quote that I thought was was uh, kind of snarky, and I liked it, and so I thought I'd share with you. Uh, and it was uh, um, the writer said, "Note the call in this verse for freshness and skill, as well as fervor. Three qualities rarely found together in religious music. We have freshness, a new song. We have skill, play skillfully, and with loud shouts. This fervor." And the writer here is saying, uh, "These are three things we we rarely find together in music." And uh, I, you may not be able to do much about the skill, but the fervor and the freshness is uh, something that we can have something to do about. Derek Kidner, uh, a writer and scholar, wrote that the new song here is not simply a, a piece that is newly composed, though, though it naturally includes such things, but a response that will match the freshness of his mercies, which are new every morning. And so this new song that we are to uh, take on our lips is is uh, some that uh, is fresh within us and, and, and for, for a new reason maybe. Uh, and, it's, and we see that it is to be directed to God. And this is that call to worship. And this call to worship now is fleshed out over the next several verses. So I want to consider uh, several things, and, and it's not necessarily our outline, but just to put some things into your mind to think about as we walk through this psalm together. i like for you to, to think about who is singing this new song to God. I would like for us to consider uh, who, who, this, um, who this song is being sung to. Of course, it's being sung to God, but noticing the different ways that God is being referred to. And I would like for us to notice the reasons for these songs to be sung. So we see that the first group uh, that, that, is, that is called to worship here are the people of God. Most specifically, it would be Israel, and we see this from verse number three, when it says, uh, "When it says the house of Israel," but also at the end of verse number three, it makes mention of our God. So these are the people of God singing to their God, and and I want you to notice uh, several reasons that these people are singing to God. There's five or six here. We see the first one is that God has done marvelous things. Verse number one, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song for or because He's done marvelous things. These are the deeds that God has done that display His supernatural power. Now when we read the Psalms, we're, we kind of get used to the flowery language and they, they speak in poetic language that, that we don't normally use in, in, everyday, in everyday conversation. But we don't want to miss what's being said here simply because it's music or because it's poetry. These things that God has done are marvelous things or wonderful things. Literally, these are things that God has done that are full of wonder, that make us marvel. God didn't just do things. He has done marvelous things or wonderful things. Things that will evoke awe and wonder and eventually worship from His people. 
Now, when we see this idea of marvelous things throughout the Old Testament, more often than not, it's referring to God's saving acts of his people. And so if we can get ourselves into the mind of the psalmist writing this, uh, these words, and we think about what are the marvelous things or the wonderful things that God has done for Israel, uh, we can easily make a connection to, and, and most, more often than not, the connection is made to their deliverance from Egypt. Think about what God did to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. The plagues that were brought were, were not just uh, a minor little things, but these were fantastic uh, wonderful, full of wonder uh, miracles and plagues that were brought where, where there would be flies to swarm the land or light uh, only in the nation uh, where Israel lived, but uh, darkness in Egypt and even the psalmist says darkness that can be felt. Uh, we, we, we see the, the Passover lamb and the, and the death of the firstborn. Uh, we see the way that God uh, miraculously brought His people through the wilderness and the Red Sea crossing and the manna from, uh, from heaven and the quail and the water from the rock and even all the way until their, their conquest in the land of Canaan. We think about the, the crossing again of the Jordan River and how God uh, split the sea once again for them and they cross on dry ground. And, and then the way that they simply conquer a city by walking around the walls and shouting and blowing trumpets. And all throughout the New Testament, we see the way that God has dealt for His people and the wonderful things that He has done for them. And God's people are intended to consider these deeds, to think about these wonderful things and wonder at them, to be in awe, to marvel at them. Not just to say, oh yeah, you remember when that happened, but to, to sit there and, 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 and replay that. Uh, like Facebook memories. You know, you, have, you get those Facebook memories and they pop up every, every day or usually if you did something a year ago and you remember something that happened. And, and every once in a while, I'll, I'll post a picture just so that I, I, I tell myself, I want to see this next year. I want to see this in three or four years and, and, and remember this event. And this is what the people of Israel were supposed to be doing, recalling these events to mind and then letting those thoughts and letting that awe, letting that wonder build up so much that it evokes a song, a new song of praise to their God. We see the second reason that, that they are to sing is because it says in verse number two, his right hand, I'm sorry, verse number one still, but the second part of it, his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Now this speaks of victory. Even some of the translations will use the word victory there. His, his right hand and his holy arm have, 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 have wrought victory for him. And it speaks of a victory or a salvation that God has accomplished all on his own. He didn't get anybody's help. He didn't need anybody's help. He did this all by himself. Think about when Israel stood on the edge of the Red Sea. They had left Egypt and, 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 and Pharaoh changed his mind and said, why did we let these people go? We had slaves. We had people building all of our, our buildings for us and serving us in so many ways. Why did we let them go? Let's go after them and get them back. And, and here's, here's Moses leading the people to where God told them to go, to the edge of the sea where they could not just simply walk across it. And here comes the army, mad, uh, mad and, and, uh, and hollering at them as they're coming from behind them and they're trapped. And Pharaoh knows it. These people are trapped and God knows it that's why he brought them there and Israel starts to get antsy and they start to blame Moses and they say you know what it's just been better if we'd have never left Egypt 
In Exodus 14 and verse 13, Moses says to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never again see. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. He was telling Israel, just stand still and watch what God does now. You don't have to save yourself. You can't save yourself. In fact, God put them in that position to emphasize that fact. They could not help themselves. They weren't crossing that sea. They weren't going to be able to swim. There's a million Jews, and they weren't going to get across to safety, and they weren't going to be able to run into the wilderness and, 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 and escape the Egyptian army and, and, and the, the horses and the chariots chasing them. But God would do something. And if you know the story, God uses Moses to part the waters of the Red Sea and they walk over on dry ground. And when Pharaoh tries to enter in and, and cross over as well, God crashes the, the, closes the walls on, upon them and, and kills them. This is the salvation that God's strength and that God's right arm have accomplished. So they are to praise Him for this reason. The third reason is that God has made His salvation known. We see in verse number 2, the Lord has made his, known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. So not only has God accomplished this salvation, He has uh, and done it on His own, but He has revealed it. He graciously allows His people to witness and wonder at the work of salvation. But not only them, other nations, as it goes on to say in, in the second half of, of verse number 2, He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. Other people have seen the wonderful salvation that only God can bring. Isaiah 52.10 says, The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now, when it talks about he has revealed his righteousness at the second part of verse number two, it's making a connection with the salvation of the first half, but it's emphasizing something slightly different. When we're talking about God has revealed his righteousness, he is letting all of the peoples know uh, and see him publicly put right what has been made wrong. Think about Israel. By the time they left Egypt, they had been slaves for 400 years. That was not right. They had been mistreated and abused. And God had said uh, years before this, He had told uh, Abraham, your people uh, will, your generations will uh, spend uh, time in slavery, but they will come out. And when God brought His people out of Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land, He was making right things that had for so long been wrong. Pharaoh was not the rightful ruler of the people of Israel. God is their king. And God was making that right as well. When the spies entered Jericho, we're jumping ahead in the story now into the, into the book of Joshua. And the spies entered Jericho and they, they met with uh, the woman Rahab. She told them, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab is speaking of events that happened 40 years ago. 
She's not thinking of something that just happened last week. She's saying for 40 years, our hearts have been melted and we have had no strength in us because we know that your God is the greatest above all gods. All the people had known the righteousness that God had revealed. They have known the salvation and all of these pagan nations surrounding uh, Israel were much greater than they were, were much stronger than they were, and yet they trembled before Israel, not because of Israel's army, not because of their size, not because of their military might, but because of the God who brought salvation to them by his own right arm and his own right hand. We see the fourth reason uh, is, is uh, it follows, it says that he has remembered his steadfast love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. Verse number three. This is that word hesed. Uh, we have a tough time to describe in English one word that uh, describes God's hesed is his steadfast love, his loving kindness, his faithful love to his people. And God had not forgotten his people. Though they had been in bondage for 400 years, God had not forgotten the promises made to Abraham and to his generations forever. God had not forgotten his covenant that he had made. In Genesis 15 and verse 13, God made the covenant with Abraham, and in that he said, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And 400 years passed, long enough for the people to begin to wonder, Is this really going to be? Is it really going to ever be free? Are we really going to ever have the, 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 the promises that God has, has, has told us we would have? And 400 years later, exactly as God planned, exactly as God said, He brings them out. And though God's salvation was slow to come, it surely came. And God proved faithful to His promise. And we see the last reason at the, at the, end, of verse, uh, in verse number, uh, the end of verse number 3, another, the last reason that they are to sing to God a new song is that all of the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. I'm going to read to you from Exodus, I'm sorry, from Joshua chapter 5, another example of the, the ends of the earth seeing God's salvation. It says, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over. Their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Now the Jordan River was the, the recent crossing that they had to get out of the wilderness and into the land of Canaan. And when they heard of that, their hearts melted. There was no longer any spirit in them. And if we read the accounts of Israel conquering the land, it was supposed to just, God said, anywhere you, you're, the, the sole of your foot goes, it will be yours. I will deliver them into your hands. And it was only because of the people's faithlessness and disobedience that they didn't accomplish more. For these reasons, God's people are called to come into worship, to worship Him with singing, singing a new song of praise. And there's an application for us here today even it's, it's that, and that it's good and necessary for us to remember the events of the past. God's past faithfulness. God's past mercies to us in order that we might be obedient in giving Him praise. Uh, one preacher uh, named Ligon Duncan, he said that it is important for us to rehearse God's past mercies to us or we will become unthankful, ungrateful people. 
that we will not be able to endure the times where God's mercies are not so obvious, and those times always come in life. For 400 years, God's mercies probably didn't seem so obvious, and yet they were to remember the times where God had obviously come through for them and, 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 and use those times to help them through the times when it was a little bit harder to see. And we, as people in the 21st century, at our advantage in history, we can look back over a much longer period of time and see even more evidence of God's faithfulness and grace and mercy toward his people. And so let us be uh, mindful to, to remember what God has done for his people and for us. But I want to ask a question that, that really we won't be answering until we get to the end of it. And maybe you've already thought of this as you're reading through this. But was the psalmist actually saying that all the ends of the earth had seen God's salvation at that time? Or was he using hyperbole? Was he saying all when he meant just, you know, lots of the nations around them? Are all of the ends of the earth really seeing God's salvation? When Israel sang this, they, were they simply remembering these events of their past? Did they really believe that all had been made right? That God's righteousness had, had fully been revealed? When they sang this in the Old Testament times, did they really believe that this was completely fulfilled? Or were they looking forward to something that is yet to come? Are the events of Exodus, the, the Egyptian slavery and deliverance, the wilderness wanderings, the conquerings in Canaan, is that the complete fulfillment? of God's marvelous works. Well, before we can answer that, and while, uh, while the question is still hanging, we, we, we see that the, the, the psalmist doesn't try to explain that. He just makes another call to worship. And this time, it's to all the people of the earth. As, as he has just finished in saying in, in verse number 3 that all the ends of the earth have seen God's salvation. Now in verse number 4, they are called to worship Him as well. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. These are the same people that have witnessed God's salvation, and now every person on the planet is to join in with Israel in giving praise to God. They are to shout joyfully in verse number 4. They are to break forth in joyous singing. In verse number 5, they're supposed to add instruments to their singing. They're supposed to add the instruments of the lyre. The, 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 the sound, and the sound of the melody, the trumpets, and the sound of the horn, and make a joyful noise before the king. And notice that all of this praise is directed from the people of earth to God, the king. Not just the covenant God, Yahweh. Not just the Lord, but God, the king. Now, it's understandable that God's people would sing praises to their king. But now it's expected of every single person on the earth. This is uh, very similar to what we would see in two psalms from now, probably a very familiar set of verses that um, maybe you've, you would recognize them. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are the, we His people and the sheep of His pasture. This is a call to the world, not just to God's chosen Israel. How can this be? Well, we find here that this is the desire and the anticipation of God's people for the day when every person on earth acknowledges God as the king. 
and gives him the glory that is due his name. In New Testament language, this would be when every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the celebration of the victory or the salvation that God has brought to his people. But again, the question rises, why would those who are not part of Israel rejoice that God has conquered them? We're enemies before outside of Christ. And apart from the work of Christ, we're enemies of God's. Paul writes to us that we are at enmity with God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We cannot please God. And then here comes God conquering and judging. And we're supposed to rejoice in that. Of course, if we are people of his kingdom, yes, we can rejoice in that. But what if you're not part of that kingdom? Why would the nations cheer and celebrate God's victory over them and his salvation for his people? Well, before we can find the answer to that, we find a third call to worship. This time, not going out to a group of people, but to the earth itself, to all of creation. Verse 7, let the sea roar and all that fills it, and let the world and, and, all, and those who dwell in it, let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. This is similar language to what Jesus talked about in Luke 19. Do you remember uh, the story when the children were praising Jesus and saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? And they were, they were, they were using messianic language towards Jesus. And the Pharisees did not like this. They, they, they thought that Jesus was allowing these children to blaspheme. And so they wanted Jesus to stop them from saying it. And when Jesus answered, not the children, he answered the Pharisees. And he says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Here's the reason why the created order rejoices in verse 9, for He comes. This is why all creation rejoices and cheers and celebrates, because He is coming. When man sinned in the garden, all of creation felt its effects, not just man. In Genesis 3, when, when, when God confronted Adam, you'll remember we read it, but there was a part in there that you, you may remember uh, God told Adam, he says, because you sin, he said, cursed is the ground because of you. The first time God came to earth, he promised a redeemer. Someone who would crush the serpent's head. But when God came to earth at Christmas, he fulfilled his promise. Made in Genesis and throughout the Old Testament as Romans 8.3 tells us, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. John 3.17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is what happened at Christmas in Bethlehem. Romans 3 and verse 21 says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Remember, we, we saw that language at the beginning of Psalm 98 that he has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Paul picks up on that theme in Romans 3. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness 
at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is why Christmas was necessary. So that in that God would condemn sin, not condemn the people, not judge the people, but to judge sin in his own son. But though God's promise of a redeemer has been fulfilled, the fulfillment or the completion, if you will, of our salvation and redemption is not yet complete. And listen to how Paul describes the, 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 the current condition in Romans 8. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing. And when he says the creation, he's not talking about you and me. He's talking about the, the language of, of Psalm 98, 7-9. He says, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. You get what he's saying there? That creation itself is groaning for redemption. This is why it rejoices in Psalm 98 that the sea roars and the rivers clap their hands and the hills sing for joy together because he comes. For these things to happen, God must come again, not as a baby in a manger, but as a conquering king, not in lowliness and anonymity, but in power and great glory. And in that day, the created order will sing, no more let sins and sorrows grow, no thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. This is that moment of verse 9 when he comes to earth. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the earth in righteousness and the peoples with equity. And on that day, the words of Psalm 98 will be fulfilled. So was the psalmist thinking of something that had already happened? I don't think so. I believe he was looking with the eyes of faith into a day that he still has yet to come. The day that the whole earth will make a joyful noise. We will sing a new song. It's described by one writer as the song, the new song is the song of praise that we lift up to God because of the coming of Christ into this world. Now, when the Old Testament saints sang this song, they did so with a look to the past. They looked at God's mercy and his salvation for his people, but they also did it with a view towards the future, a coming Messiah King. When we read these words today, we also look with a view to the past. We remember God's faithfulness to keep His promises to Israel and to us. We remember His mercy to call those who once were far off but have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And when we sing these songs, when we consider these words, we look with an anticipation of things that still haven't happened but are sure to come. A line I read from, a, it's a songwriter, but he's a pastor as well, and he said, we sing between what is and what will be, the already and the not yet of our faith. 
these are things Psalm 98 describes that have not happened yet, but are certain to happen. They are sure. So, let us sing. Let us remember the marvelous things that God has done for us. Let us anticipate the God who is coming to judge and to rule and reign in righteousness. Let us rehearse our new song. We think about the new song in Revelation 5 that they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The truth is God is coming again. We look forward to that if we're in Christ because we know that our sin has already been judged. If you're outside of Christ, if you're apart from Christ, God is coming. He will not hide. and He will judge. And notice He will judge fairly. He will give you due for your sin. The only hope that we have is to look to Christ who bore our sin for us and know that when God comes then we can rejoice with all of creation because He has come to make it all right. Because He has brought salvation by his own hand. When Isaac Watts penned the words to his famous song, he wasn't thinking about the coming that had already happened. He was thinking about a coming that is still yet to come. He wasn't remembering a baby who came to Bethlehem, but a king who comes to rule the world with truth and grace. Just a moment as our closing hymn, we'll sing joy to the world. I invite you to Think through those lyrics and sing the new song. It's not a new song, it's a very old song, but it's a song with freshness as we anticipate what God will do. When we remember what God has done, we sing praise to our God.